If you hit a wall on the trajectory that you're on, and especially a wall where other people are telling you, you gotta compromise what you, not do what you believe is right. Instead of giving up your ambition or compromising, you can always go do something else. You just heard U.S. economists and 2018 economic science laureate Paul Roma. I'm Fanny Harjestam, the producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. There's a traditional saying in the U.S. Navy. It goes, ship, shipmate, self. The idea is that the ship is the most important thing. Protect the ship. Second comes your shipmates, who are also important, but not as important as the ship. And last comes yourself the least important of the three. Ever since he heard it, this mantra has stuck with Paul Roma. He brings it up when he talks about society today. He thinks there's too much priority given to the self in politics, and economists are partly to blame for this. Roma shared the 2018 prize in economic sciences with William D. Nordhaus for integrating technological innovations into long-run macroeconomic analysis. This means that they were able to integrate both ideas and innovation into economic models for the first time, showing the benefit to society when people join together and collaborate in new ways. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer at Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with support from Riksbanken, the Swedish central bank. So here's our conversation with Paul Romer, where we'll cover ships, relationships, and a very special moment he shared in Stockholm, just hours before he received the prize. Hello, Adam. Hello. Nice to hear you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm a few minutes late here. Not at all. Not at all. It's just lo lovely of you to make the time. Thank you very much indeed. When you came to Stockholm to get your prize from the hands of the king, you got married the same day in Stockholm. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Everybody's sort of embarrassed to ask, and I, I thought I, I thought they'd, it'd be an obvious question. Like, why in the world did we decide to get married on the same day we were getting? I was getting the prize. It's a very good question. Well, you tell me. <laughs> okay, and I'm I'm happy to answer it. Um, I had been living with this uh, amazing woman for, for five years. We had never once talked about getting married because we had both been married before, and we'd sort of just on the edges explored it enough to realize that um, we were averse to a kind of a, a wedding ceremony event that was controlled by parents and controlled by a lot of other people who have expectations about the way it's supposed to go. You know, like bachelorette parties, bachelor parties, <laughs> gifts, this whole kind of, you know, set of peripheral activities that have, to be kind of like contaminated what's supposed to be a ceremony of commitment between a man and a woman. So when I heard I had received the prize in October, I had this, this thing I imagined, which is I could suddenly picture how to have a wedding that was a surprise and to get our parents there. We, we'd also just explored this in a vague enough set of, you know, possibilities to understand that that um, eloping wasn't going to be an option. <laughs> so we had to include family. 
But like, how in the world do you organize a surprise wedding and get your, you know, your family to the church? So I realized that this was our chance. Actually, I proposed to my wife. Well, first I actually got her, let's let's invite your parents to Stockholm. And she said, okay, sure, yeah, they'd, they'd appreciate that. Then once I had that, I proposed to her. Fortunately, she she accepted. On the spot? And then, On the spot? Yeah, yeah, this was at home. This was at home, mind you. Yeah. But then our plan was we get everybody to Stockholm. They're all dressed up to go to the award ceremony. I don't know, like, how often do you get your parents in white tie and tail anyways? And then, you know, like, what we did was that, like, that morning, that, that Monday morning, we said, by the way, that thing on the schedule which said family photo, we're actually going to go to a church to take that photo, and we're going to get married there, too. So we told our parents, uh, actually told my parents that, you know, after 11 o'clock the night before, 11 p.m., and told her parents uh, the next morning, and then told my, my siblings, uh, you know, on, on the way there. But the whole point was that we wanted to have a surprise wedding that included our families because we wanted to run it, you know, set it up the way that, that we wanted to, to, to do it, which was just an Anglican minister and our families commit to each other in, in the church. And that was the reason we, uh, you know, <laughs> tried to uh, tried to get it done at, at, on the prize day. And, it, you know, nobody actually, this is this thing about imagination. Nobody thought I could pull this off. <laughs> but, you know, it, it worked out. So, you know, <laughs> that, you never know. That is amazing. And I hadn't known it. you'd done it all as a surprise for the family. That Yeah, no, it was, it was, it's actually unfortunate that this, that we even, we even kind of arranged to have like the New York Times write a story about it because we knew we had to let people know what had happened. But we, we were really disappointed the story didn't explain that um, we, we had done it to make it a surprise because there were a lot of people who felt a little bit left out and, uh, you know, it, it would have helped, I think, explain why we, um, why we, we did what we did. Uh, I have to tell you, the, the, the best part about all of this, though, is uh, – and, and I said, like, my, my wife um, was, like, shortlisted for the Pulitzer in biography this year. I mean, she's a very accomplished uh, woman. And so somebody asked her, well, Caroline – if Paul had proposed to you before he got the prize, would you have accepted? <laughs> and she kind of just looked up a little bit and said, we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> could be a benefit of having the prize, could not be. Who knows? Yeah, uh, that might have helped. <laughs> how, how, how did the family react to the news? On that evening, they were they were very happy. Uh, they, everybody everybody took it well. It was a little bit hard, like some of the family members. Okay, well, when do we get to give the toasts mm-hmm. where we talk about you? And uh, no, nope, uh, there are not going to be any toasts. I'm sorry. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no. This is our wedding. We're going to do it our way. So no, no toasts. No best man speech at the Nobel banquet, which turned out to be your oh. wedding feast. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh God. I mean, how many how many Nobel? I have how many best man speeches have you heard that um, you, know, you wish you hadn't? had to sit through. So, uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I, I saw you two dancing on, in the Golden Hall. So, uh, maybe, yeah. 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 That's quite yeah. a, yep. it's a spectacular setting for your wedding dance. But sure. What yeah. that is an amazing and lovely, lovely story. Yeah. Do you know if it, I, you know? And, but actually, and, and let me now, now play the the economist. You know, who just can't help himself. But there is actually a kind of an interesting economic issue here about status competition. If everybody in a community is trying to give the most elaborate, most impressive, you know, wedding ceremony, the biggest banquet, the most gifts, the you know, the most famous band, you know, I don't know, the most uh, you know exotic destination to to go to, you get this kind of 
escalation, you know, race where everybody's trying to outdo everybody else. And you end up wasting huge resources on events that really don't have the meaning that we we want them to have. Mm. And so I, I think a lot of young people in the world these days want to go back to a wedding, which is about a commitment between two people, and get free of this crazy kind of status competition. And so I think, you know, in Sweden, they have a, a legal designation that's functionally equivalent to being married, but there isn't actually a wedding ceremony. And I always kind of wondered, well, why have it if it's the same as being married? I just just get married. But I realized that that may be the way in Sweden that people can escape the social expectations that, oh, okay, you got to conform to this, this status competition and make a big display of your wedding. So, um, you know, if we'd been Swedish nationals, we might have had another way to, to, to solve this problem. Well, this way, you've got the best of both worlds. You've got the Swedish system and you've got the party. So <laughs> That's true. That's true. It, it worked out well. <laughs> well, um, we last spoke on that amazing day in October when you had just heard the news. Uh, yeah, right. And you sent me a beautiful photograph that your wife took of you sitting alone at a computer, looking very composed. Uh, <laughs> but I, I guess this was just before the storm broke, really. I had to do. I felt like I had to do a little bit of a, you know preparation to get ready for the coming storm. So, mm, mm. and I, I, I suspect the storm is still raging. These many yeah, storm, storms. Yeah, storms probably the wrong metaphor, but uh, it's certainly. Um, I'm in this environment where there's a lot of opportunities for me to do new things, and I have to be very uh, thoughtful about which ones I do, which ones are most important. Yeah, of course. No, you, ha- you have to show a certain amount of. You have to learn a new discipline, I guess. Although maybe you were disciplined yeah. before. Well, you have to keep ratcheting, ratcheting it up. Uh, you know, my work has been all about progress and growth. And on many dimensions, things keep getting better. But there is this one dimension where it's inevitable that things get worse, which is this sense that we feel more and more harried, that we don't know how to allocate our time. And if you think about something like the wage, dollars per hour, that can be what you earn but it's also like a price. Well, how many dollars would I have to pay to get an extra hour of time? So rising income means that the price of time is going up. So we all feel more harried. We all feel like we have to make more careful decisions how, about how to spend our time. We all want to read shorter things. We take shorter vacations. And the biggest change for me about since winning the prize is just that the price of my time has gone way up uh, because now there's so many more things I could do with my scarce amount of time. I got to pick the ones that are the most important. Yes, yes, and I, can, I mean I can see how it's a particular problem for for you and for people who've been awarded the prize. But as you say, the price of time for everybody is is going up and it's very it's very different from the picture that we sort of remember from future projections when we were young that somehow i don't know the world was going to become automated and we we're all going to have more leisure time but it hasn't worked out like that yeah yeah i i think that that idea of people just uh with nothing to do is is, is just it reflects a profound misunderstanding and, and i think the inevitable you know, side effect of progress will be that everybody feels like there's so many more things they could do and they have to choose more carefully what things they actually want to do, what will really give them a sense of value and accomplishment. 
Gosh, that is a very different picture from the the, the doom scenario of uh, robots taking over our jobs and us all all being left scratching our heads wondering where we fit in. There's a there's a strange attraction in that kind of fantasy, dystopian fantasy. And, uh, you know, I fought this when I was at the World Bank. I kept trying to say to everybody, listen, let's focus on the problems we have. Don't tell me about you what the problems are that you think we will have. Just focus on the ones we actually have. And, and you know, the underlying rationale was when you start spending your time thinking about the problems you will have, you're, you're really probably focusing on the wrong thing. And I think we have to be careful. There's something sort of attractive about certain kinds of dystopian visions. And uh, we, we got to avoid that kind of strange appeal and just look carefully at the facts. I personally, and economists more generally, have been a little bit Pollyanna-ish or always talking about the, the glass half full side of technology. I think a more realistic way to think about it is that technology brings good and bad. Every new technology has elements that are good and bad. The way we make progress is that we have a government which prevents the bad things. So then we get the good side of a new possibility without the bad, and that's what is what leads to is to leads to progress. Mm -hmm. Can I give you an example Please. where I think this is very clear? One of the most important inventions, probably the most important invention in human history, was development of the city, you know, dense urban settlement. Uh, this grew out of the development of stationary, uh, sedentary agriculture uh, about 12,000 years ago, and, and everything about human progress takes off after this, this discovery. You know, we're still learning to appreciate the opportunity that dense interaction with other people offers. But for, you know, for centuries, People died younger in cities because they were exposed to so much infectious disease. You put people in close proximity and keep them there, uh, they're going to infect each other and get sick and die. Eventually, governments got on top of this problem. We had science that diagnosed it and governments that got on top of it. We had measures like public sanitation and a protection of uh, fresh water. And then finally, city life could actually be as safe as uh, rural life. So you get the benefits of opportunity, interaction, dealing with more people without the cost of infectious disease. But that that's really the way to see the, the possibilities for the future. We'll discover things that have good sides and bad sides. The question is, do we have a functional government that we can tell, go stop those bad things because we want the good things, but we don't want the bad things? That's a great example. You used the word control a little earlier. And I suppose the question is how we control what the technology is delivering, or in the case of a city, what this new way of living is delivering. And there's always a fear that these things are out of control. But of course, that doesn't need to be the case. The jargon, which I didn't actually propose, and I've always been a little ambivalent about it, but when we talk about endogenous growth, the point was is that growth comes from things people do. We're really in charge of this. It was back in the 90s that Roma laid the foundation of what is now called endogenous growth theory. Before Roma, theorists had explained an economy's growing output by looking at obvious inputs, for example, the number of hours worked. But Roma stressed a new driver of growth, ideas. And ideas require specific conditions to thrive in a market. 
you know, we need to keep that in mind, not just about the good side, like if we do more uh, of the right kind of things, we'll discover more things. That sounds nice. But on the other hand, there's this kind of more difficult side to it, which is that we're also in charge. We're responsible for the bad things that technology can produce. So we have a choice. We can live with those bad things or we can stop them. And um, I, I think one of the real failings of economics is that we let some people with a political agenda paint the government as this incompetent, malevolent actor, when in truth, the government is our tool for making decisions. Oh, we don't want that. You know, we want this, but we don't want that. And so we need to really take responsibility. We can choose, and we use the government to carry out our choices. But gosh, it needs a coordinated approach. I mean, if you take the example of cities, I know this is a, a topic of particular interest to you. Uh, it's a, it's an enormous thing to try and steer. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, this is, I think, where the um, the really interesting intellectual questions come up. There's a, a kind of a philosophical purity about this notion of the invisible hand. Somehow, it will just all work out by itself, automatically turn out well. Some explanation here. The invisible hand is a metaphor coined by Adam Smith. Not our own podcast host, but the 18th century Scottish economist and philosopher. It has been used to argue that free markets, made up of economic agents acting in their own self-interest, deliver the best possible social and economic outcomes. It's a controversial concept. And if you you know if you want to imagine a comic book world, yeah, that, that's kind of fun to imagine. Is not the world we live in. We need to have a government that sets some parameters that controls the way we interact with each other, and and keeps us from acting on our, our bad sides. You know, you can't just go out and steal things from people. You can't go out and threaten people. You, you know, if if that's the way we behaved with each other, we wouldn't get the benefits of exchange. Uh, so, so we have to limit, you know, stealing. We have to limit violence. But we also have to limit infectious disease. We have to limit uh, somebody who discovers... You know, the OLED is a great additive to put in gasoline and, and gasoline for car engines. It makes the engine run better. Well, that's all fine and well, but you're, the lead actually poisons young people. So, you know, we need the government to say sometimes, no, you can't put lead in gasoline and poison all these young people. You got to stop doing that. So, uh, we, you know, we're not going to make progress, uh, get car engines that run without polluting our kids, unless we've got a government that can intervene and say, wait a minute, you got to stop that because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's destroying, uh, destroying the health of young people. Tell me a tiny bit about your Charter Cities initiative. Well, it's important to recognize that this was a discussion about uh, political organization and about political jurisdictions. It's a way to imagine making it possible for, say, a new city to develop. Or put it another way, it's a way to uh, create a political jurisdiction where many people who would like to move to a city and have the opportunity that a city can offer, a way that they could do it. Let's have a closer look at charter cities. This is a concept that Paul Rome has introduced. It refers to a new kind of city that is partly autonomous, governed by a new set of rules under foreign supervision. The idea is that these cities could be a place where millions of poor families could become residents, live and work under these better rules, and eventually lift themselves out of poverty. 
This raises some questions about, okay, well, how would you design the city? How, what kind of urban planning do you need? We could come back to that in a minute if you want. But the, the point of the charter city discussion was really to address the political challenges. And I think the most constructive way to think about this right now is to picture uh, what economists call a trilemma. There are three things we want. You can only have two out of the three. So if we were imagining, you know, there's like hundreds of millions of people who'd like to move to a city, be safe, get a job, have their kids go to education. If we imagined a new city, how would we like the politics or the accountability to be organized? We'd like uh, local democratic accountability via elections. We'd also like equal treatment under the law. As everybody goes there, they're all treated the same. Finally, to make this work as a place where many people can go, it needs to be open to large-scale immigration. And in particular, when you've got, say, a million people there, if it's a big enough site to accept 10 million, you've got to make it such that the million people who are already there are willing to let, you know, five, nine more million people uh, come in. And the, the reality is you just can't have all three of those things. So many places have uh, democracy and equal treatment. They just don't allow large numbers of people to come in. They just simply don't. Uh, you could try and have you know, local democratic accountability and, and uh, allow in many migrants, but you treat them as second-class citizens. You don't let them vote. You don't let them have full, full rights. That's a very corrosive and damaging equilibrium in terms of you know, human interaction. Mm -hmm. But it exists. Uh, the, yeah. the possibility I was trying to get people to imagine is treat it like Hong Kong. The example that Romer often mentions talking about charter cities is Hong Kong under the British. During that time, from mid-19th century until 1997, it had a set of new rules imported by British colonialists. These rules differed greatly from what already existed in mainland China. What Roma argues is that it was this set of foreign laws, social norms and institutions that was responsible for Hong Kong's economic rise in the 20th century. And under that proposal, once you get up to the, your, your terminal population, like as big as you can get, like 10 million, at that point you make the transition to local democratic um, accountability and you give up on allowing any more immigration. And then finally, just to kind of <laughs> to make the point that often gets lost, you could have, say, the governor who is appointed to run a jurisdiction like this. That governor can be accountable to a democracy. You're not, you don't have to set up some kind of autocrat or, you know, dictator for life. In, in Hong Kong, under the British, the governor was appointed by a prime minister who was elected by a a democratic body, and those governors were held accountable for doing the right thing in, in, in Hong Kong. So this, this idea of uh, uh, new jurisdictions that can, that can sustain equal treatment under the law and can allow large numbers of people to come in without upsetting the people who are already there, that was really the possibility I was trying to help people understand uh, that we could, we could aim for. Mm. It does really require quite a shift in one's um, um, preconceptions about uh, about local government. Um, it's a much it's a nurturing environment, I suppose. In some ways, it's a rather paternalistic environment to begin with. It is very different. It does require a shift, and um, and this is where imagination comes in. 
because I challenge everybody who's uncomfortable with this solution. Look, I, you know, most people don't like it. I don't particularly like it. But you tell me what's better. Hmm. You tell me what's going to work. If there's, say, 500 million people who are ready to move this year to some place where they can get a job, their kids can get an education, and they can be safe. And the problem is, is no one else has an answer for how do we accommodate five, 500 million people. You know, a lot of people want to change the conversation. Well, imagine it was like 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. We'd all decide to divide up the 20,000, mm-hmm. blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and they'd be accommodated easily. They'd assimilate, no big deal. Okay, fine. But the problem we face is not 20,000. The problem is 500 million. Mm-hmm. A- and, you know, like none of those, oh, we'll just kind of all take a few and they'll easily blend in. Nobody will mind. Nobody will notice. That just is not a solution when you're talking about 500 million people. So we got to get out of the rut we're in and imagine some new possibilities. Are there other cities around the world that you'd have people watch apart from Hong Kong? Well, you know, historically, I think the best examples of something like this were um, were Hong Kong under the British. And remember, they took in millions of people in Hong Kong. Nobody in Britain got upset about immigration. Nobody in Hong Kong got upset about it. It worked just fine. And, And... you know, part of the protection for people there is they could go to Hong Kong if they thought it offered something better for them. They could leave if they didn't like what they what they got there. So uh, I, I don't think it's exactly paternalistic. It's really more humane, humanitarian. It's a humane response, but it still leaves people in charge of deciding what's best for them, um, themselves. You grew up in Colorado in a political yeah. family. Yeah. Well, tell me tell me about your childhood. <laughs> well, um, my father grew up on a ranch. I, I knew his father, who you know, was still a, a, a rancher in kind of rural Colorado. Um, uh, my father, early in his life, uh, early meaning like high school, college, somehow devoted to devoted himself to public service and, you know, a political life. When I was growing up, he was a Democratic politician who went and marched in the, like, the civil rights marches in the South in the, in the 60s. Uh, he, you know, early on was uh, an opponent of the Vietnam War, where uh, it meant that he, um, he basically got at cross-purposes with the rest of the Democratic Party. Hmm. I, you know, I think one of the most important lessons I learned from him is that you don't have to compromise. If you hit a wall on the trajectory that you're on, and especially a wall where other people are telling you, you got to compromise uh, what you, uh, not do what you believe is right. Instead of giving up your ambition or compromising, you can always go do something else. So he, he left the Democratic Party. He left politics for 10 years because, uh, you know, at the time when Lyndon Johnson was still the, the, the president, he became, you know, an, an, a vocal opponent of the uh, of the Vietnam War, and then, you know, it turned out you never know quite how things will evolve. It turned out he had a chance to re-enter politics ten years later. Eventually, became governor, became head of the Democratic National Committee. But I think the most important lesson for me was you don't have to compromise. You can always go do something else, and that I think has been a, a kind of an important guide for me throughout my career. He sounds like a very honorable man. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. We've talked about this, and I don't even know if it feels like honorable. It's because if you really are committed to doing the right thing, it's just it's it's painful to compromise. You know, <laughs> you don't want to do what 
kind of other people are saying you should do when you know it's wrong. So it's, it's kind of, there's almost a, you know, a self-interest about saying, I just can't stand the prospect of going along with something I think is wrong. I'll just go do some, something else. Uh, As a child, were you called on to support him in his stance? Did you support him? Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. And um, um, I was, I, I'm sure because of his interest and probably because of his encouragement, I got very interested in race relations as uh, as a really profoundly important issue that the United States had not yet fully resolved and still hasn't fully resolved, uh, to be honest. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting when I look back at this, I, I would not look back at this and say something like, oh, look at how aware and, you know, morally upright and, you know, I, I wouldn't brag about what, what, what I was like as a teenager because in retrospect, I was just t totally oblivious to the problems about a mistreatment of women relative to men in the United States. You know, I just didn't see it. Uh, so I don't know, I, I'm not trying to claim there was something, you know, honorable about who I was, but I ended up being a kid who was very concerned about race and how the United States was going to uh, address race. Hmm. Well, you, and then, yeah. and then uh, you know, I, what, I think what happened was I, I felt like things started to really fall apart in the United States. And I think fall apart in a way that um, frightened me. And so by the time I got to college, I kind of, veered off in the direction of studying cosmology and physics. I think I was almost overwhelmed by the challenge of, uh, um, you know, creating a better, a better social and, and, and political world. You know, from about 1968 on, things really deteriorated in this country. And, and the, um, you know, the progress we'd seen in the early stages of the civil rights movement, I think, um, really started to unwind. So, um, so I vectored off into physics, and it was only when I decided about what I was going to do for graduate school that I kind of started tiptoeing back in the direction of economics. And then even then in economics, I wasn't that focused on policy, and it's only over time where I've really reconnected with how do we make a, a better world. Hmm. So, yes, because you must have grown up very aware of the polarization of it, of, of the country, and uh, interesting to to think of cosmology as being escapism from that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, <laughs> given my family background, this was pure escapism. And so, like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't into dystopian science fiction about the robots are coming, but, I, you know, I, I was perfectly willing to go hide in, you know, the Big Bang and uh, uh, theories of the universe. But you couldn't escape any further, could you? It's a, yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty, that's about as far as you can get from, you know, um, uh, policy, uh, policy applications from science. Yeah, that's one thing you, you know, one thing you really can't control through politics. That's true. Yeah, no kidding. Um, okay, so, but you found your way back to economics. And, mm -hmm. um, but but from a from an academic standpoint, you were interested in the, in the question for its own sake, were you? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I can actually remember um, uh, reading a particular news article in the paper. It was an editorial, an op-ed. And, at a time when I was already engaged in what I thought was just this pure research question of why had progress been speeding up over time, if you look across the centuries of the millennia. And this was an article advocating for a kind of like government policy for encouraging more exploration of space. 
And I remember having this, this realization that, oh my goodness, this theory that I'm working on opens up the possibility that people could start advocating for various kinds of, you know, government programs and in, in support of science. And some of those might be a mistake. But I, so I remember being almost like surprised. It's a sign of kind of my naivete, but surprised that the pure research I was doing actually could have, you know, policy uh, policy implications. <laughs> well, now you find yourself very much back in politics. I mean, comparing it to your feelings as a teenager, how how do you feel about the current state of politics in your country? Well, um, I, I think it's... It, you know, we're always as as economists and scientists, we're always interested not in just you know, like anecdotes, but data. So I think that we need to be looking around politics throughout the world, and I think there are broad signs of dysfunction that uh, in our politics that, that go beyond uh, just you know the accidents of which particular individuals get you know get into positions of of power. Um, I, I'm now convinced that um, we've made a really serious mistake in economics and in our you know, policy uh, analysis more generally, a really serious mistake in accepting this idea that the government can't do anything right, the government should just be kept as small as possible, the biggest risk is just a government that, that can do things I just think, go back to my story about cities and public sanitation mm. and public health. It's just it's just so factually incorrect. It's not a question about ideology. It, it's either infectious disease was killing people or it wasn't. And it was either government policies about public health and sanitation that stopped dying or didn't. But this is not ideology. And we shouldn't have let it become a kind of a, an ideological uh, kind of position that gets hardened into, into dogma. So I, I think what's happened is that we've got parties on the left and the right, neither of which is willing to defend the state, the nation, the group as a whole. They're both kind of captured by a kind of a self-interested individualism. And then this gap of nobody willing to say, we're going to do what's right for the nation, has allowed an opening for populist uh, authoritarian type ru- rulers or you know potential rulers to come in and say, "Look, back me. I'm going to do something to make this you know make this work better for all of us." And and the problem is that this this position, which is correct, that the government can do things to make life better for everyone, has now been taken over by people who are not committed to the rule of law, who don't understand how to actually do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And that what we need is a more thoughtful, you know, articulated vision of how to use the government to facilitate progress. Well, that's fascinating. It really, and you're right. It, it really is the the rise of the individual, and nobody is saying back our government. They're, they are saying back me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I talked to a colleague who has several. She's got five girls, um, several of whom are in the military, and she told me that in the Navy in the United States, they have a a, a little mantra. That you know your priorities are ship, shipmate, self. You know the ship comes first. You got to protect the ship. Then you try and protect your shipmates, and only after thinking about those two do you protect yourself. Hmm. So you know we've got 
economists who've kind of given cover to the parties of the right who are just saying, self, 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 self. You know, that's like the only thing that matters. You've got parties of the left who are saying, oh, I got my shipmates, but it's this little it's this little crew here, and, you know, somebody else got their little crew there, and, you know, we all want to pretend our little crew. But nobody is saying, wait a minute, we got to protect the ship. Yeah. And, and so I, I think, and I think economists are uh, really um, very much to blame for especially giving cover to this absurd idea that self, 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 self. That's that's actually the solution to every every possible problem. It's that's very it's a very stark example. Uh, of course, we have a good example of going on in Britain at the moment with Brexit, where it's self party country in that order as opposed to the reverse that people seem to be yeah, considering. I, yeah. I, you know, well, Brexit has been a, a huge concern of mine, um, a sign of what's going wrong. Um, I, I think the the Brexiteers were able to seize this vacuum and say to people, we need a government that will protect us, who will protect the nation. And the way they then offered to do that is, I think, foolish, counterproductive. It's not going to protect people in Britain. It's actually, I think, going to make people worse off. But it was not wrong for them to say, look, the traditional parties here are not talking about protecting ship here, ship meaning Britain. Mm. And so I, I think, you know, the intellectual elites, economists, you know, the traditional parties have left this vacuum. And then it's inevitable that these kind of carpetbaggers, you know, these these opportunists will seize the vacuum because many people do understand that we need a government that does what's right for us. Yes, if you, yes, yes. And, and, and in Britain, clearly, people have been ignored by government for a very long time, and so they feel it very yeah, keenly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's a it's a really it's a really sad uh, kind of state of affairs. But I think you know what do you do? I, I think what is like what I can do is start to articulate as clearly as I can this kind of like ship shipmate self kind of uh, kind of hierarchy and say we need to be much more explicit about protecting the ship. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that frankly is a little uncomfortable for some people is, is that th- this group that you know is, is now la- labeled as the anywheres. You know, people like me who just kind of fly around from one country to another. We could live in any city, anywhere. We're not really very interested in the nation as the kind of the definition of ship. You know, we'd in a sense love to have everybody think of the whole planet and the whole world as the ship. But that's just not the reality in in which most voters live. They think of the nation as the group that can act together, that can ensure each other, that can protect each other. And, you know, even as we try to avoid the, the harm of nations, like, you know, battle and conflict, war, aggression, we can still recognize that the nation is the most likely unit where you can achieve some sense of unity of purpose and some kind of commitment to including including everybody. And, and instead of just, you know, wanting to ignore that possibility, we really need, I think, to work to make nations the unit's that have a sense of unity of purpose and a sense of commitment to include everybody so nobody gets left behind. On a personal note, I just wanted to ask about your dogs. You have dogs. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, um, well, it's kind of like we have a our, our kind of our second family. We have four rescue dogs. Turns out they're all... Females, so that wasn't really, you know, 
conscious choice. Um, they're, they're all sizes, ranging from one who's a, probably a great Pyrenees who's more than 110 pounds down to a Chihuahua who's about 10 pounds. <laughs> so we kind of got all sizes, but it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a little pack at home. So, uh, Is that, uh, yeah. Are they chosen? Are you, do you rescue selectively? Are they chosen by design? I have, I have an English setter. We just have uh-huh. the one. Well, we just have the one. Yeah. Uh, she's yeah. enough of a handful to be um, to, to, yeah. to, to yeah. produce the trouble of four. But it's a kind of a series of kind of one-off decisions. It wasn't like there was a, a big grand uh, grand scheme of things. But um, I, I think we are trying to get comfortable with the idea that four is plenty. Yeah, <laughs> it takes it takes time. It, as going back to where we started, and the value of time these days. It's um, yeah. You, yeah. But, but they give you they give you something as well. I mean, you know, the, the, it's really when I get a suitcase out, they get all dejected. They know what suitcase means. I know. But yet, when I come when I come home, um, they're just so happy to see me again that um, it warms it warms my heart. Exactly, and they're always on your side, and <laughs> and and in our case, always on your pillow at nights. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, I was. I, I'm laughing because we have one one dog that's, that's a, who's a terrier, and uh, you know the saying is, "What's the difference between a terrier and a terrorist?" You can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So they're on your side, but you know sometimes they have a, oh. a kind of a, a view of their own. Oh, very much their own. Their own. I was going to say their own people. Well, their own dogs. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's the nice thing their about own, them. You don't. You don't control them. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. And, and they are very emotionally kind of reactive and aware and uh, responsive. So that that's what makes them so so inter- interesting and satisfying to to live with. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's nice to observe other creatures doing their thing. Good. Wow. Well, it's been, well, it's been such an enormous pleasure speaking to you. Um, Good. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Well, thanks. All right. Thanks. Adam. Many thanks, and thank you to all those in the studio for their help as well. Thank you. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye. This podcast was produced by Phil Tinterland for Nobel Media. The host was Adam Smith, and the producer was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website, nobelprize.org, for more in-depth content on the laureate's awarded work. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.